Right now, so this last year, on average, 25,000 people are gathering at a Sojourn Network church on any given Sunday. And I don't know how you feel about that number, but to me, it's like seeing it birthed out of this little thing. That's a lot of people. Uh, and then this past year, our church gave um, over $40,000 to help start 13 new churches around the country. So that's when like the giving buckets go by, that's part of where our money goes. And the Sojourn Collective has given close to $300,000 in the last year to fund these churches. And so it was exciting to see some of that and see the people and the faces where this money is going and hear about their places and, and what's going on. Uh, it's this weird dynamic though, because on the one hand, these things are super encouraging, um, hopeful, exciting, but then there's also this huge undercurrent of insecurity and anxiety, and it's on, it's on all levels. So there's the established churches, right? Like, so I'm a pastor at Sojourn Church. We started this. So whenever I talk to somebody, I better be interesting, smart, and helpful, and wise, so that they're like, wow, you know, look at the established church guy. Um, and then, so there's some pressure there. You want to be, you just want to be impressive. Uh, and then there's some people that are just checking it out, trying to decide if they want to start a church or not. And it, going to these things can kind of feel like a, like a blind date or just a weird first date where it's like, will they like me? Will I like them? Will this be a fit? And for the folks that are thinking about starting a church, it often involves things like quitting my job, raising money, relocating, and there's just huge changes. And there's this fear of like, should I do this? Is this a good idea? And then with the people who are actually starting churches, they're, they're in the grind of it, there's this terrible fear of how people will respond if I tell them how it's actually going. Because anyone, if you like, if you're on the church planters email list or something like that, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, everything's amazing! It's going great! We're so encouraged!" They're just lying to you because they're worried you won't send them the check, right? That's what they're, they're feeling. That spin, that spin mode. That's probably not totally fair. So if you get that, don't like go say, "My pastor told me you're lying." Um, but like, church planting is so hard. Uh, one one of our advices to younger people is if like if you can do anything else, do it. Anything other than going and doing this, you should do it. But if not, okay. And there's this fear of what if I have to tell them how hard it is? What, what if I have to actually reveal what's, what's going on? And so, like, to put it simply, uh, church planting conferences, on the one hand, are incredibly encouraging, hopeful, exciting. But there are a few places where the fear of failure is as palpable. Uh, you can smell it in the room as a church planting conference. Um, maybe some of you have been to parenting classes and you feel that same kind of pressure. Uh, some of you are first-time parents, I think, and I remember things like no one ever, people tell you how tired that you'll be, but they, they never really tell you how tired it will be. And then I started hearing things like sleep training. I didn't know that was a thing. Did, did you have to check? Yeah, it's not funny. It's terrifying, right? <laughs> Nobody tells you you have to train a human being how to sleep. I thought they would just sleep. And the people who aren't parents are like, what are you talking about? Exactly. And then there's all these opinions on how, what's the best way to sleep train your child. And one of them is, is you let the kid cry until they pass out. Like that's an actual thing. And when you're sitting there waiting for the child to pass out, it's like psychologists said, do this. And you're like, is this okay? And then they'd become teenagers and do something stupid. And you're like, it's because I made them cry it out, right? <laughs> So if you, some of y'all have been parents for a long time and you forget how scary it is to be a parent when you're this young and you're worried about every little thing. So it's, it was palpable with the church planters, but I think it, like it's 
germane to this conversation that we have baby dedication here because we're all afraid of that it's our fault that we, the kids are screwed up, right? Or something I did, something my mom did, that now I'm this way, now I'm going to do that to my kid. Um, a few weeks ago, maybe some of you guys saw this, uh, Eugene Peterson passed away. Uh, who's like one of my heroes. I felt like the world got darker the day he died. It's the first time I've cried over a stranger's death. And so I went back and started reading some Eugene because he talks about these kinds of tensions. We know we shouldn't be afraid, but we're afraid. And I was reading about some of this stuff and, and he was speculating um, which disciple of Jesus, which of Jesus's disciple would we look at, would we feel most drawn to? Because like at a church planting conference, the people that you want to talk to, sometimes they can be the the place where you're always not sure if you're talking to the right person or not. And most of us want to be talking to the guy who's successful. So it's always, it's always the person who's like, oh, I planted this church when I was 25 and it grew by 14,000 people in six months. And now we've saved 8,000 people and we've started, you know, just like, oh my gosh. And like, let the, like, if you've ever been in a church staff or in a ministry, professional ministry context, you know that it's like, if it's growing, that's who you want to talk to. And, and Eugene was speculating, like, which one of the disciples, given our cultural climate, uh, would we feel is that guy, like the one that we wish that we would talk to at the conference. Um, and I've been tossing around this idea a, a little bit. I, so I look at our culture and, you know, we're drawn to the powerful, um, the influential. Uh, it's interesting how so many people feel just drawn to the wealthy person in their circles. Or if you meet someone at church and you get the vibe that they're wealthy, how you just get more curious about them. But the person who just, you know, obviously doesn't have money, we don't feel drawn to them. What, what's that about? Uh, and, you know, as I was thinking about this, there's, um, there's one disciple that knew how to leverage influence in, in ways that I think we would be really drawn to. So he was the guy that was friends with politicians um, and, and seemed to have an inroad into the circles of influence, the elites in the culture, which isn't it weird how we, re don't you ever get just a little bit more excited when it's the celebrity who talks about being a Christian as opposed to like the gas station clerk or someone that you just, you know, you don't think has any kind of influence or, or whatever, or how often we feel like if our, if our guy, right, elections are coming up, if you didn't know that, um, or if our guy gets into office, everything will change. Right? What, what do we really need? We need someone with an ear to the governor. or We need someone who can talk and get a meeting with the president. And we pray for those things, thinking that there's... And there was one of the disciples who got into those circles. Uh, he was also really good with money. He was a wise investor, uh, and he handled his money well. So he had connections, he could network, and I really think he was the guy we'd want to talk to at the conference. He was, he was a get-it-done kind of a guy. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, which one of the disciples right now, I'll just go out and tell you his name was Judas. And there's all the connotations there of Judas and how we feel about him and we know the story ends. But if he was in our church, I think we'd be like, that, I want to be around that guy. He, he's the guy. He's, surely if there's one disciple who's doing it, it's that guy. Because he, at least I would say he was probably the most American of the disciples. You know what I mean? Like, he was drawn to power. He was drawn to wealth. He could influence. He had political connections. He had religious connections. He could leverage and network people to get what he wanted done, done. What's the other option? What's the obvious churchy option? And my Catholic people aren't here? Peter, right? Peter, the rock. <laughs> Which is like, that's what we're supposed to say because he has the biggest statue at 
the Vatican, right? Peter was an absolute disaster in the ways many of us fear most. He, he was socially inept. You see that? Like embarrassing his buddies. He was constantly opening his mouth and sticking his foot in it and being publicly rebuked or hushed by Jesus. Like, come on, Peter. Really? All the time. And sometimes it's funny, but then also like at the, the climax of Peter's life, when we look at it, it's like, this is the moment. This is, Jesus told you this would happen. At the moment of crisis in his life, when it's on the line, Peter shrinks back and is absolutely impotent. Like he's absolutely a coward. At the most critical moments of Peter's time with Jesus, he said the most embarrassingly inappropriate things asking ridiculous questions, making ridiculous suggestions, taking terrible actions. So, and this is where, like, you don't, I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud here in church, but just search your own heart. How many of us at the conference, at our church, would look at the guy who's constantly embarrassing himself publicly, who's being hushed and rebuked by Jesus, who's sticking his foot in his mouth, who's failing over and over and over, would be like, that's the model. That's the guy that should get to speak. There's something fascinating, uh, or some, maybe some really important lessons I think we can learn that apply to what Paul's getting at here in Galatians if we keep playing out what we know of their stories. So Jesus, or Judas, rather, was, um, he was interested in power and money, it seems. He held the money. He was worried about how the money was spent, and he really wanted to get in with the political elites. Uh, and you can see how this made him a little bit crazy. Maybe you remember the time where uh, Judas was worried about God's use of his power and his money? Remember when Judas got in an argument with God over perfume? If you don't know that story, you got to go read the Bible. That's your application for today. Judas tries to rebuke and correct Jesus over Jesus's use of power, who he'll let near him during what time with all these people around, and Jesus's use of their money. Jesus, do you know how much this is worth? So how, how blind do you have to be to be face-to-face with the one who has all power and infinite resources and correct them about their use of power and resources. Like the, the blind pursuit of success, money, power, influence at any cost is the surest road to slavery. Uh, the soul that pursues success at all costs is never free. The, the soul that lives in perpetual avoidance of failure is the suicidal soul. The life of Judas is, it's an it's an ironic picture of distorted freedom and an unbridled drive for success. And that can maybe be easy for us to acknowledge conceptually. But what else can success mean in our world if not money and power? We can see that, yeah, Judas' story ends with a measure of political influence and a pocket full of money and also with a noose around his neck, right? We can see that. But what else could success mean for us if not money, power, influence? It's the air we breathe in our society, and it's infected the church. How could Peter possibly be a picture of success for us? Well, I'll tell you what St. Eugene said, because I miss him, and then I'll show it to you in this text. Eugene said, fear of failure inhibits freedom. The freedom to fail encourages it. So, 
In other words, if you live your life driven by success and the fear of failure, you will be a slave, period. And your self-imposed slavery will produce blindness and you'll drive yourself crazy. Only when you know you can safely fail will you become truly free. This is one of the core themes of the book of Galatians. And it's a difficult message because most of us, whether you're a church planter or a new mom or a new career or you're at later stages of life and you're not sure what to do, so many of us are driven by success and terrified of failure. So Paul, up until now in Galatians, has talked pretty theologically, so conceptually, abstractly, and he starts this section by saying, let me give you an example from everyday life, or let me give you an illustration about what I'm talking about. And here's what he says. He says, just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. So he's talking about the law, those are the rules of God, and then the promises of God that he's given a long time ago. And we've been talking about this relationship between the law and the promise, the law and the gospel, for several weeks now in the book of Galatians. Uh, This irrevocable agreement he's referring to, ooh, laser pointer, irrevocable agreement, um, some translations will call that a will. So it's it's a Greek term that was common in their day talking about a will. And here's what he's saying. After dad dies, you don't get to change the will, right? Dad set the will. It's a legal document. And no matter what happens after that, you don't get to change what it says. Um, And here's Paul's explanation, what he's talking about in the illustration. He said, God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And it doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. That, of course, means Christ. So, There was a promise made to Abraham. In the illustration, he's saying it's like a will. It's an irrevocable agreement. And because it was set in place, it determined an inheritance. The promise, the will, cannot be changed after the fact. So what Paul is setting up here is he's saying whatever happened after the promise cannot change the promise. See that? Like a will. It's irrevocable and it's done. And what does this mean? I love this part of Galatians because Paul just spells it out. He says, the agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise for if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not not be the result of accepting God's promise, but God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. So this is Paul responding to this tension of like, what is success? What do I do with all this fear of failure I have? What will it do to be pleasing to God and safe with God? And what Paul is saying is that the will, the promise that God made to Abraham cannot be changed by something that happened 400 years later, which is the giving of the law, the rules through Moses. So when we're trying to understand the law, all of the rules, we have to understand that they exist in the context of the promises that God has made, not the other way around. So the laws somehow have something to do with the promise, not the other way around. And boy, have we gotten that confused. It's easy enough at church to say that God's blessings in our life, his love for us, our place in his family are determined by the promise and not by our performance. But functionally, we live as though dad's inheritance is based on our successful obedience. So here's what I mean. Um, This is the church planter who thinks that the attendance is what dictates God's love for them. And if you want to know what this feels like, ask somebody who's worked at a church or has worked in ministry at some point. The, The numbers reflect God's delight and pleasure in you. And when the numbers are down, 
then you start that process of looking back through your week and saying, which sin is it that God is coming after me for that's showing up in our decreased giving or our decreased attendance or just the restlessness that comes at the end of the night. Something's gone sideways and we search our life looking for the thing that is, be, whatever, this is happening because I did this decision and God's punishing me. This is like the young parent disease or maybe it's after you've been a parent for a while and you're looking back and you, and you see what happens with your kid and you think this is God being mad at me because of my failures back here. Maybe you're the mom who sees all of the other moms who like fold their laundry right after they've done it or right after it comes out. There's people who do that, you know. Um, and you're laying in bed at night convinced that God is disappointed in you because the laundry is still sitting downstairs in the basket in front of the dryer. It's the Galatians thinking that they have to obey the law to secure God's love for them. Every one of us has something that we look to to determine, is God pleased with me or is he not pleased with me? And if we violate that checklist, then clearly God is not pleased with me. That's what it looks like to, to trust in the law and not in the promise. Paul makes it clear that the law is not a bad thing. It's not a waste. But it maybe arouses in you the question, why the law at all then? If God saves us based on a promise, why would he give us all of these rules? And thankfully, Paul answers this. He says, the law was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. What's this about? The law is God shouting across creation that salvation must be by grace. If we are to be saved, it must come from grace and not from our obedience or our performance. Why? Well, if the law could make us righteous, we would obey it and we would be. But we can't keep the rules. So in that sense, the law is a divine mirror. Some of you have a really hard time looking at your life and seeing what's sideways in it. Or you feel like you're doing okay. The, the, the law is intended to be a mirror that says, look at yourself here. Compare yourself to this. When God says, be holy as I am holy, be perfect as I am perfect, this is what I talk about. This is what I mean. And so we look at the law and it reveals who we really are and how far short we fall. And that convinces us we need grace, not obedience or performance. The law was not meant to keep us from failure, which some of us look at it, all those rules and think this is what God is expecting me to do. The law presupposes, it assumes that you are a failure and God gives it to us to convince us of this because most of us refuse to believe that. Or we want to go back to maybe I'll just try a little bit harder. I'll just do a little bit more. And, and we go chase after the law instead of resting in the promise. It's God's divine reminder that his pleasure rests on us based on a promise. And so he goes on here and says, the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. The law was to carry us to Christ. And as time rolled on, people wondered if God had forgotten you got 430 years from the promise to Abraham to the law of Moses, then a whole bunch longer from there until the coming of Christ. Do you think somebody ever wondered? think somebody ever wondered, man, has God forgotten me? Has God left his promises? Like this is a hard day for a lot of folks because on the one hand, we're celebrating all this new life. And some of you really know the pain of that question, has God forgotten me? You know, like some of you really know the weight of infertility the waiting, the wondering, the weekly disappointments. And we know what it feels like to endure long chunks of time wondering, has God forgotten me? The law was meant to be this continual reminder 
pointing us back to the promise. So even while we wait, we hold on to the promise, the grand fulfillment of all of this that would come in Jesus Christ. And it wouldn't be about taking something. It would be about receiving. It wouldn't be about obedience. It would be about believing. The scriptures declare we're all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. This is the great pressure release of creation. You don't have to prove yourself to God anymore. Your your acceptance, your reception into the family of God is based on a promise fulfilled in Jesus, not on your obedience. So to, to try to get a little bit more practical, for those of you wrestling with the nature of the law, learn to see it as an arrow, first to your own heart, pointing to your heart, this is who you are. If you have any doubts about your own sinfulness or your own need for grace and mercy, compare yourself to the law, gaze upon the perfect law of the Lord and see what it exposes about you. But don't let that spiral you into defeat and destruction because it will crush you. You have to follow that to what it ultimately points for, and that's Jesus, the one who would obey for you, the one who would be executed brutally for you, the one who would rise in victory for you, the one who promised his spirit would live inside of you. The, the law is not just an arrow to your own heart. It's, the, it's an arrow to the promises of God. So we see that we come to God not with our obedience, but with, with hearts fighting to believe these things are true of Christ. And this allows us to start um, resting in a place of deep security in our souls. And, and by resting, I don't mean we don't do stuff. I mean that internal churning and turmoil and that fear starts to get quiet. And, and so here's, here's what I mean. Uh, I don't know what it was called. I just know everybody was doing it. Like, you don't have to raise your hands because it, maybe it's uncomfortable in church, but you can if you want. The super mega million cash lotto billion dollar ticket thing, right? Like the power, what, the Powerball. Powerball? Who bought a Powerball ticket when it was like 1.2... billion, right? Mega millions. It wasn't even, they had called like mega billions this time, right? It was a, right? It was a B this time. Yeah. Who played the what would you do with a billion dollars game? Waiting for the number to be pulled. Anybody else pull that? Yeah, right. Isn't that what you do? You buy the ticket. And then when you think there's a chance, you go home and you play the what would you do? I played that with some friends recently and without even thinking, right? Like the first answer was I'm buying a helicopter. Right? The guy was like, I'm, I'm getting a helicopter. And he had a plane where he would go to learn to fly it. And when, you know, so one person's buying a helicopter, another person was, I'm going to buy a yacht. And, then, you know, like if you play that game and someone's like, I'm going to get all the work done on my 2004 Honda Civic. You're like, you're playing the game wrong, right? Like, you're playing the game. I don't think you, I think you underestimate how much a billion dollars is. So, like, we... We start going down there. We dream of having unimaginable riches. How much the stress of our life would be reduced if we had a billion dollars. And maybe, you know, you're like, I would build a hundred orphanages and I would fund every adoption. And I, you make, maybe you've got these really wonderful desires behind there. Maybe you're like, I would buy this vehicle or this, I don't know, whatever your thing is. We, we dream of how much better life would be in that way. And it just, I don't think that's wrong. I think it's a fun game. And if, I don't know, if you want to buy your, you just very low odds, right? Somebody's got to win, but if you want to buy your lottery ticket, I mean, I guess go, whatever, do your thing, I suppose. Uh, we fantasize about all of that, and I'm not saying I think it's necessarily wrong. It just makes me wonder if we've forgotten some of these rich promises of God. So here, it's telling us we have an inheritance in Christ. 
If, you're, if your trust is in Christ, if, if you're following him, your destiny is to rule the nations alongside of Christ. Incredible authority, incredible power. Paul, you know, the Bible has letters to insecure church planters in it. And Paul wrote one of them to Timothy. And he says this to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. That should be confusing to a lot of us. When I look at our church or the average Christian in our church or in our culture, when I say there are people of power, love, and self-discipline, I'm like power, that doesn't mean people are scared of you. It means where you go, you create life. People come alive around you. Think of a gardener tending a garden. Things come alive. People are empowered. People are released. If I had to say, if I had to be asked to pick a word to describe most of the Christians you know, in the top three would be the word fear. How many people do you know that walk around with a sense of settledness, confidence? Not that they're so wonderful or have it figured out, but that my father is unbelievably wealthy and he loves me. Do you know what a joke a billion dollars is to God? Like, you know, I mean, it's not, it doesn't even qualify as pocket change to God. He owns billions of galaxies. How much gold is out there? I... And yet most of us live in a world that we, we feel like is marked by scarcity and lack. A billion dollars is nothing to God, and he says all he has is yours. And I don't, it's not to say like, I like making guys uncomfortable about prosperity gospel stuff, because we still have some theologians at our church. And there's a lot that the prosperity gospel people get wrong, okay? Uh, and it's big stuff they get wrong. There's a couple of things they get really right, though. And so here's what I mean. Find somebody in this church that's been a Christian longer than 30 years, okay? And thanks be to God, we have several. There's a lot of folks who've been following Jesus that long. And ask them, has God ever left you in need? Ever. Has he ever left you in paralyzing lack where you just didn't know where the money was going to come from? Ever. Now, maybe he's taught them along the way, you need far less than you think you do, right? But these people who've stepped out in faith, God never abandons them. He doesn't forget them. Sure, maybe they went through seasons of feeling, feeling overlooked. God is even present in there doing something. The, the point is, if we have a father who is this wealthy and who never fails in caring for us, we need to turn from seeing success as worldly riches, as power, as influence. So, like, go vote this week. Please go vote. We are so fortunate that we get to do that. Um, but please don't vote thinking that your guy is the one who will usher in the kingdom of God or that if we could only get our guy in offices of power, something would happen. How many times do we have to be lied to by a Democrat before we're willing to say the Democrats will lie to us? And how many times do we have to be lied to by a Republican before we're willing to say the Republicans will lie to us? They're, they're all lying to us, which doesn't mean don't vote, which doesn't mean don't think through who to vote for or have opinions and participate. What it means is to not make the mistake of thinking the kingdom of God needs people in positions of power and influence. Do you know anything about the history of the church? It has moved forward from the margins of society, from the overlooked, from the poor, from the oppressed, rising up and proclaiming what life with God looks like. 
People who in a worldly sense shouldn't look as free as they do and they're out there living freely. Or as Paul would say, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Why does God move from the margins? To prove he's God and doesn't need us. So we need a new definition of success. It can't be power and influence. Defining success like the world will fill our church with Judas's. They look good, they look impressive, but we know how the story ends. So here's, here's biblical success in light of the promise of God. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. What does life become about? Knowing God and being known by God. Experiencing the presence of the risen Christ. Experiencing the power that raised him from the dead. This means resting in your riches as a beloved son of the king of the universe. And don't get caught up on that gender language. It's very important that the scripture uses that language. It's not to say only boys matter. It's saying that in that culture, only boys matter. And if, if you were someone who wasn't a firstborn son, if you were someone who wasn't part of the majority culture, who wasn't a male, who wasn't in power, you were less than human. And if those topics make you uncomfortable, I would encourage you not to come next week, okay? It gets much worse next week because Paul, that's what we're talking about next week. So just put your helmet on and come ready. If you were someone who wasn't born into a place of privilege and power, boy, you had almost no chance. And God is saying, in Christ, I look at all of you as firstborn sons. I look at all of you as the person who inherits all of my wealth. What this means is that success is knowing Jesus and experiencing his power with you, and we can root ourselves in who we really are. We are daughters and sons of the Most High God who owns all things. So we go about our day-to-day -day relationships, our, our work, knowing our, our identity is secure by right, not by obedience. But in other words, nothing can uncrucify Christ. There is no failure that you can make or commit or do that will unresurrect Jesus. If God's love for you and your place in his kingdom was established 2,000 years ago, that means nothing that you do can change that. So we get away from thinking about our obedience and performance as what makes God pleased with us. We cannot change the, our Father's will, his written agreement based on our obedience, which practically means we can learn to fail our way to Jesus. This is how we become free to fail. Judas failed his way to a homemade noose because he wanted power and influence and had no idea where to find it. He came face to face with power and influence and couldn't see it. He couldn't recognize it. He knew the voice of the one with all power and authority, but he couldn't hear it. His blindness cost him everything. Peter failed his way to Jesus. He failed and came back to Jesus. He failed and came back to Jesus. He failed and he failed and he failed. And what was Jesus' restoration plan for Peter? First, Peter, would you have breakfast with me? So tell us about the heart of God. To reconcile perhaps the greatest betrayal in the history of humanity, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? If you are saved by grace through a promise, you are free to fail. You can lay down your pursuit of money, of power, of worldly influence, and point your soul to Jesus. You're free to fail in the kingdom of God. So, real quick, sorry, I went long. Um, 
I want you to take a second and think about what is your fear of failure costing you right now? What is your fear of failure keeping you from right now? Is it maybe you want to start a business? Maybe you need to have a hard conversation. Maybe you need to admit that you are wrong to somebody. What gifts would you use if you weren't afraid of failing as you used them? In your bulletin, you should have hopefully gotten an index card. If you don't have a bulletin, you can write this down on a Connect card. Uh, I want you to take a second before we come to communion and write down what that is. If you weren't afraid of it failing and blowing up in your face, what would you go do? And on your way out, I want you to drop it in that box that's right by the door out of the auditorium. And the pastors over the next several weeks are going to pray over our church through these things. Not necessarily that you'll succeed in them, because I don't know what the Lord's plan is for you and what he wants in that, but that we would not be a people marked by fear, but we would be a people marked by power, of love, of self-discipline. If you live your life in fear of failure, not only will you fail, but you will also exhaust and shrivel your soul. Your identity as a beloved son, the firstborn, is secure by inheritance. Your father has infinite resources available, and if he's willing to give you his own son, how much more graciously will he richly give you all things? Would he withhold something small from you if he's willing to give you his son? So the invitation for us is to go and fail boldly, risk, dream, go. Live in a world where failure doesn't bind us and has no hold over us anymore. You're safe and you are free, Christian. And so we remember on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. This is my perfect obedience in your place. I've kept all of the rules for you. I've suffered for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine. He says, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. This is what secures your place in the family and kingdom of God. This is what makes you safe to fail. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. The wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come remember who we are together. Let's pray.